folks. What's up? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This is episode 74, Thriving Training, How to Crush Clinical. Before we get to the goods, I want to hit on a couple of things. The comments about the last episode have been rolling in. We took a pause from the Thriving Training series to release the conversation with Kyle and Jen Steen on their decision to hit the road full-time in the Sprinter van they built as a tiny home on wheels. Kyle has been a CRNA for 13 years, and he and Jen wanted to get after it while they were still young and able-bodied enough to travel and have fun doing the things that they love, which include mountain biking, hiking, and paddleboarding. So we had a whole conversation about their decision to uh, basically pause their careers and hit the road full-time in this custom sprinter van. So, uh, so here's some of the comments. Melody wrote in, this is a very wise idea. Wish we would have taken off or had the ability to do so midlife. Mid-60s, many hikes are now behind us. Good for you, end quote. And then Steven wrote in, what an amazing adventure and a brave thing to do. We become so attached to our material possessions and they come to own us and rule our lives. How freeing it must be to be liberated from this baggage. I admire their sense of valuing what is really important, what an experience they will have. Couldn't agree more, Stephen. I'm stoked that they are off on their grand adventure. And y'all can follow them on Instagram at Frank Van Steen with two N's in van. Frank Van Steen. So I also want to give a huge shout out to the folks over at the Ohio Association for Nurse Anesthetists. I made it out to the Osana meeting a couple of weeks ago to talk with their people about the CPC program and provider wellness. Amber Musara, Peggy Blankenship, and the rest of the team pulled together a stellar gathering of close to 200 CRNAs and SRNAs. I witnessed some laser-sharp SRNAs from each of the seven programs in Ohio battle it out in the College Bowl. We had University of Cincinnati, Lourdes, Case Western, Cleveland Clinic, Akron, Youngstown, and Otterbein. With Otterbein coming out on top in the College Bowl. Nice job on the buzzers, y'all. I was also glad to hear that the program directors from each of these universities are collaborating to build research projects amongst their doctoral programs and to recruit their graduates into clinical positions at local hospitals. This is a fantastic way for local programs to build not only stronger clinical sites for their future SRNAs, but just quality anesthesia programs at the local facilities there. So good on you for that. I don't know if it was the fact that this was the first in-person meeting that Osana has had since 2019 or that the SRNA showed up in force or what, but you could feel a palpable energy throughout the entire weekend. It goes back to that vibe I was talking about at the start of this series. We are not just shuffling into 2022 in our sweatpants. (laughs) Uh, The Osana Association was focused, energized, connected and moving forward with purpose. I was so impressed and I'm super grateful for the opportunity to come hang out with y'all. So thank you so much for having me out there this spring. So this series on Thrive and Training is an attempt to corral a bunch of content on the experiences of anesthesia trainees to help y'all dial in your game and hone the tools you'll need to be successful I wanted to do this series for a long time, but this isn't the only content on Anesthesia Guidebook that focuses on trainees. So if you found this podcast or this series, if this was recommended to you by a professor or friend or mentor, I want to point you to some other episodes that I think you're also going to really find helpful for your path in anesthesia training. We've got lots of content on pharmacology so far and much more to come in the future. 
But to prepare for clinical, don't miss the shows on the Top Drawer Rundown, episodes 17, 18, and 19 of Anesthesia Guidebook. These, for years, were the number one requested content and remain some of the most listened to episodes. They cover all of the common pharmacology agents that are in the uh, top drawers of the anesthesia machines. Some other shows on pharmacology include rundowns on dexmedetomidine, succinylcholine, buprenorphine, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of volatile anesthetics, local anesthetics, and ondansetron for preventing spinal-induced hypotension. We've got an episode on a multimodal opioid spraying approach to total knee replacement and one that overviews regional anesthesia in general, as well as one on opioid-free anesthesia, and then another on the anesthesia implications for patients who use cannabis. So a bunch of stuff that has to do with pharmacology. Some other content that you're going to find helpful are two shows for anesthesia trainees who are going through the process with your families. Episode 15 is specifically about your significant other's and their experience of going through anesthesia school with you. So that show is with Jenny and Robert Montague. Rob is now one of my CRNA colleagues here in Portland, Maine, and his wife Jenny is a registered dietitian. They've got two young kids and moved across the country for Rob to go to school and then ended up staying in Portland. They talk about the experience of doing anesthesia school as a family, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from both of them, but particularly Jenny's insights on being a significant other while your husband and father of your kids is going to anesthesia school. And then I was able to grab another couple actually out of the same anesthesia class for episode number 50 and focus on parenting specifically during anesthesia training. And that's with Lynn and Nate Wooden. Now, Lynn was in Robert's class at the University of New England, and her husband, Nate, is a licensed child therapist. They are an amazing couple, also with two young kids, and we focused in specifically on the changing dynamics of parenting during anesthesia training. Nate brings a wealth of experience to the conversation as a child therapist and a husband of an SRNA. So both of those shows, if you're gearing up for anesthesia school with kids, with a significant other, you'll definitely want to check out episode 15 and then episode 50. A couple other episodes you want to go back and check out that would fit perfectly into this thriving training series are this. So we got episode 10, which is 10 quick tips on mastering airway management for uh, learners of airway management, essentially. And then episode 24 is with Jason Bolt. And we talk about avoiding landmines as an anesthesia trainee and how you represent yourself on social media. So for all y'all Instagram, TikTok millennials out there, that is the show for you. Episode 24 with Jason Bolt. Episodes 31 through 37 all deal with learning anesthesia and the path to expertise. So we hit on deliberate practice, understanding the cognitive state of flow in balancing challenge with skill, and the power of the invisible can of calm. We also hit on asynchronous learning, emotional intelligence of SRNAs, and the transition this year of entry to practice training for CRNAs becoming a doctorate degree when for the last 30 years or so, it's been a master's program. Then there's a 10-episode rundown on provider wellness from episodes 51 through 60. Now, these touch on everything from how to pay off your debt as a new grad to dealing with the pandemic to how to weather the storms and setbacks you'll inevitably have in anesthesia training. The top show in this series from episode 51 to 60 is probably episode 54 
you know, I mean, they're all good, but if I was going to point you to one, I'd say go check out episode 54, which is called Hardship in Anesthesia School. This continues to be one of the most listened to, most downloaded episodes from all of Anesthesia Guidebook. And it zeroes in on the very best advice and stories that I have for you if you find yourself up against a wall or being beat down by God knows what on your path to becoming an anesthesia provider. If you are experiencing hardship in anesthesia school, that's your show. So lots and lots of content on Anesthesia Guidebook for anesthesia trainees before this series kicked off. The whole mission of what we're doing with Anesthesia Guidebook is to help providers master their craft as anesthesiologists. So whether you're a CRNA, a physician anesthesiologist, or anesthesia trainee, you are who I have in mind when I create these stories and guides. I see you as the hero on a journey. You're on a path that's challenging, that few people take, and you will face significant hurdles. Things like excruciatingly difficult residencies and board exams, mountains of debt from medical school or nursing and anesthesia school, the highs and lows of practicing as an anesthesia provider, and the ever-present challenge to sharpen your skills, expand your knowledge base, and develop your emotional intelligence so you can master this particular craft of being an expert anesthesiologist who stands in the gap for your patients and elevates the performance of the teams that you work in. And to do all of this while finding the kind of balance and wellness in your personal life that leaves you deeply satisfied and living from a place of joy, wholeheartedness, and deep, deep stoke. Gotta be stoked on the path. (laughs) So, you know, that's where I'm coming from in this series with the previous shows and where we're going to head in the future. I'm honored that you have tuned into Anesthesia Guidebook. And so with that, let's get on to some specifics about how to crush clinical as an anesthesia trainee. I'm going to share with you my insights as an SRNA clinical coordinator at a level one trauma center. Day in and day out, I'm in the thick of it with SRNAs who come train with us. I also work alongside a physician anesthesia residency and a fellowship program at our trauma center and have gleaned a little bit of insight into into their path. So I'm gonna try to pull, you know, what I've learned from watching, you know, several classes of residencies and just opened up the fellowship this last year. So what I've learned from these folks. My hope is that this episode will help you get off to a great starting clinical. It's not gonna teach you everything you need to know, but it should be a bit of a launch pad and help you set a highly functional trajectory in your clinical training right from the start. Now, there's three things that you need to master in the clinical portion of your training. They're the skills, knowledge, and attitude related to becoming an anesthesia provider. The first thing I want to talk about is how to dial in the right kind of mindset or attitude. Now, back in episode 70, Jenny Fennell and I talked about developing a growth mindset. That's a very specific way of approaching growth and development, mastering the knowledge and skills that you need. And it can change the whole way you see everything, you know, no big deal. But I'm not going to rehash that here. I actually want to talk about a different part of mindset. So to tee this up, I want to share an incredibly cheesy story with you. When I was in high school, we had a motivational speaker who basically, if I remember right, yelled at us for the better part of an hour about how to get our lives together. The theme of his talk was all about attitude. And his central thesis was that if you add up the numerical values ascribed to the letters in the word attitude, 
as they correlate to the letter's position in the alphabet, like if A is 1 and B is 2 and C is 3 and so on, the word attitude, if you add up all the numbers, adds up to 100, like 100%. <laughs> so like, you know, your attitude is everything, right? Right? Attitude. That was pretty much the student's thesis. <laughs> That's pretty much how it went. Uh, and so, you know, if you're wondering, the math actually does check out. And in all fairness, and to Mr. Motivational Speaker's credit, since his one-hour talk over 20 years ago is still something I'm talking about, the attitude that you approach your clinical experience with really does shape that experience and probably comes in to set the foundation of that experience. So let's talk about this for a minute. The attitude you bring to the work you do, the way that you present yourself and how you treat other people is probably the single most important determinant of what your path is going to look like. You can't immediately change the system or context that you find yourself in. You can't make all of your preceptors more friendly or your program a higher quality with better faculty or your patients in cases easier to manage. But you can determine the attitude you will have in the middle of all of that. And that will have a significant impact on how people respond to you as a trainee. So here's some themes. Modern day poet Kendrick Lamar puts it succinctly, sit down, be humble. <laughs> when you come into your clinical training, you need to realize that you don't know everything. And your clinical faculty, the surgeons, the pre-op, PACU, and OR nurses, and the surgical and anesthesia techs actually know quite a bit. So listen to them. Be humble. Be teachable. It might surprise you what they can show you. One of the hardest things for SRNAs to go through is the transition from being expert critical care nurses to complete novices in the OR. I guarantee you that I won't be able to sell this to you through a podcast. You won't fully understand this until you actually experience it. But over and over, year after year, this is a resounding theme that I hear from our SRNAs that I work with. They're shocked by how frustrating it is to not know what to do or how to do it in the OR and how long it takes to achieve a level of proficiency with getting patients smoothly from pre-op to PACU. And this reality is accentuated by the fact that you were a really good critical care nurse before anesthesia training. You knew what to do and how to do it. But the work we do in anesthesia is really different than bedside ICU care. So it's really hard to be a novice again and have to learn a whole new skill set when all you want to do is be good. You just want to be good. <laughs> and that makes me think of this video that I want to share with you. It's about whitewater kayaking, skill progression, and dreaming about being awesome. Put a link to it in the show notes of this podcast. It's called Dream and it's presented by NRS, which is a paddling equipment company. You got to check it out. It's like a five-minute video, and it captures perfectly the feeling of being a novice in the OR. But it's all about this nerdy, inexperienced whitewater kayaker who shows up to river and watches the super cool expert paddlers doing expert stuff. The novice paddler is sitting there in his nerdy gear, and he's looking at these experts, and he just, he just wants to be good. He can't wait to be good. He just wants to be good someday, like the pros. And then he begins to daydream about what that would be like. And the video takes you into that dream, of course, when said nerd paddler suddenly turns into the real-life Ben Marr, who's one of the best paddlers on the planet. And then he's dropping sick lines through this rugged wilderness river, of course, to like some thumpy beat music. 
And then he meets his spirit animals, a dancing Yeti who backflips off the waterfall as he drops the waterfall, and a magic panda who shoots purple lightning bolts at the paddler, who then metamorphs into an even ratter boater who drops waterfalls in a glowing boat in the pitch black of night for a riverside crowd of raging, dancing onlookers gathered around a campfire. It's totally sick. The daydream then recedes back to the nerdy novice Benmar at the put-in who's just dreaming about what it would be like to be good someday. <laughs> you just want to be good. You just want to be good. And that is what it is like to be a novice in the OR. You see these experts all around you and you you want to be like them. You just want to be good. So you got to go check this video out. It's called Dream, presented by NRS. Check it out on YouTube. Links in the show notes. You'll totally get it when you see it. All right, so here is some actual practical tips for starting clinical in the OR. So here it goes. Show up early and be prepared. Showing up is half the battle and there's no better time than being on time. In terms of being prepared, there's three things that interplay with each other that determine what you're going to do in any surgical case or procedure. There's three things. The first is what is the case and who's doing it? You need to know if the surgeon has any particular preferences or ways about approaching these cases. Number two is the anesthesia plan and the meds that you're going to give. And number three is the patient's own comorbidities. The more you know about each of these things, the better prepared you'll be to manage all of these variables and how they interact and dictate the others. So read about the surgeries, understand what's actually going on and why the patient is having that surgery. Understand the backstory. So know about the surgeries and then try to figure out if the surgeon has any preferences. And then the second part is knowing what the anesthesia implications and techniques are. Obviously, you're on a path to learn anesthesia, all of the options, variables, and implications of the different anesthesia techniques, which is where the real art and science of what we do comes to life. And then lastly, there are the patient's comorbidities and their own preferences and how those will dictate both the surgical and anesthesia plans. So that's how you show up prepared. Learn about the surgery, the surgeon's preferences, and why the patient is actually having that procedure. What's their backstory? Learn about the anesthesia techniques, medications, and options, and show up knowing the patient's own comorbidities in their home meds, and what the implications of those things are for both the surgery and the anesthesia plan. And then be ready to adjust your plan based upon the preferences of the surgeon, the patient, or your preceptor the day of surgery. No big deal, right? <laughs> It will get easier as you get into it. Uh, all right, so here's some more practical tips for the clinical environment. Find out where things are and get what you need yourself. Ask your anesthesia techs and preceptors to show you where the anesthesia workroom is. Familiarize yourself with the supplies in the anesthesia machine drawers and medication carts that are in the OR, and then go get whatever else you need and have that in the room to start the day. Take personal responsibility and ownership for what you need to do your cases. And this is a huge theme for clinical, taking ownership and responsibility. Own your practice. At some point, you need to learn who your resources are and how to rely on anesthesia techs and OR nurses to help you get what you need and execute your plan. As a CRNA, I often ask anesthesia techs and OR nurses to help me get supplies that I need either before or during cases. But early on, you will win a lot of points with these folks and your clinical faculty if you figure out how to stand on your own two feet and get what you need before a case starts. 
So if you need an A-line for a case, go get it, string it up, and have it ready to go. If you need pediatric airway or IV equipment, go figure out the range of sizes you need and have them in the OR. You don't need to open everything ahead of time, but at least have it in the OR ready to go. If you plan to ramp up your patient, go get the troop pillow or a stack of blankets and build a good ramp ahead of time. Don't wait till the patient's in the room and then be in the shoulda, coulda, woulda game when the airway is a lot harder than it needs to be. One of our surgeons personally goes and retrieves the antibiotics he wants for his cases if we don't already have them in the room. It's remarkable. He's a general surgeon who does a lot of add-on emergency GI cases, lap coles, dead bowel cases, that kind of thing. If we're in the OR with the patient getting ready for induction and then we check in with him when he shows up on what kind of antibiotics he wants, and if we don't have those in the room, he turns around and he goes, get, and, he goes and gets them himself. It's really amazing. It's a pretty small gesture, but it's all about supporting the mission of taking care of the patient for him. He owns the overall mission that he is on, which is to get his patient what they need for that surgery. Another example, some of our anesthesia residents doing thoracic cases have been a little slow to learn to get their own materials for positioning, and it drives our OR nurses and techs crazy. Our thoracic oncology patients get positioned laterally for lung resections through video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, or VATS, procedures. And when we flex the table to open their chest wall up, we inevitably need blankets to help support the patient's head as the table drops away. Once you've done these cases a few times, you know that these supplies are part of the deal, and most anesthesia providers will get them ahead of time and have them prepared in the room. It's the same as like setting up your endotracheal tube. You need to kind of plan everything you need. But unfortunately, some of our residents either struggle to remember that they need these supplies, or they just see it as the nurse's responsibility to fetch it for them in the moment. You don't want to be like that. If you need blankets, go get them yourself. If you need a blood sugar machine, again, or an art line setup, or a video laryngoscope, or some special medication, try to plan ahead and get the supplies yourself. Take ownership. Learn where things are. Figure out what you need for a case and get the stuff yourself. You can always take things back that you don't need. And eventually, you will learn who your resources are and what stuff is reasonable to ask them to do. Then always be grateful that they're helping you. Do not take anyone for granted who's helping you. Absolutely everyone there who is doing anything to support the mission of getting that patient through the OR is critical and valuable, especially if they're directly helping you do your job. When you express gratitude and thank them, they will definitely be more inclined to help you in the future. So be thankful. So some other tips. Try to learn the lay of the land quickly, where the bathrooms are, how to get to pre-op and pack you, where the cafeteria and break rooms are. Learn where the peanut butter and crackers are and where to stash your water bottle or coffee mug. Learn systems quickly, things like phone numbers, where things are kept, how different anesthesia practices do things, what the door codes are, if there's little punch button numbers on the door codes. Figuring out this basic stuff will just make everything else go a little bit smoother. Next up, support what you see and are brought into. Go with the flow. The specific group may do things differently than what your professors taught you or what you saw in SimLab. Be open-minded and flexible. Your time to change the world will come. But when you go to clinical, however your preceptors do anesthesia, as long as it's relatively safe and not endangering the patient, that is the way that you do anesthesia that day. 
If you're at a place that you think is five or even 10 years behind the best practices that you've learned about in school or at some other place you've rotated to, believe me, it won't score you points if you bring that up. (laughs) You need to be careful how you advocate for changes in practice as a trainee. You don't want to come off as a know-it-all in clinical. So just go with the flow. Build relationships, establish trust. As those relationships develop, you'll find the opportunities to talk about changes to practice or realize the preceptors or groups that you shouldn't bring this up to. This is all about developing emotional intelligence as an anesthesia trainee. Now, it's a little bit hard for me to tell you to pump the brakes on change when what we need more of in the world is change and innovation. So hear me straight on this. At first, listen, be quiet, take it in, and go with the flow. Then work on building relationships, your skills, and deepening your knowledge and anesthesia. Then smash the model and change the world. But choose those opportunities carefully while you're a trainee. All right, next tip. Be on time. In the morning and when you're coming back from breaks and lunch, don't develop the reputation as a straggler. Next up, don't expect to get out on time and offer to stay late to finish cases. Hopefully, your clinical sites treat you with respect and let you get out on time. But if there's an interesting case going on that you're in, plan to stay to see it through. You are there to learn, right? You're only going to learn if you're actually there to do the cases. By offering to stay late and finish things and not making a big deal about it, two things happen. One, you might actually learn things and add that case to your growing experience level. And two, you will likely start building a reputation as a hard worker and someone who doesn't complain. If, or more like it, when you need a favor in the future, like getting out early for some special meeting or event or some other request, you'll have that goodwill built up with your preceptors, which will endear them to help you out. And you want to be able to cash those favors in when you really need them. In terms of staying late in clinical hours, one of my personal themes for preceptors that I advocate for as a clinical coordinator is to respect the resident's clinical schedule and not treat residents any worse than you would treat an employee. I know this is shocking and rarely followed, but I'm a believer that if an SRNA is scheduled from 7 to 3.30, they should get out no later than 3.30. The exception being if you're actually finishing a case and headed to PACU or it's an exceptional learning opportunity. If you would stay as an anesthesia provider, as a preceptor, as a physician anesthesiologist or a CRNA, if you would stay and finish that case and or you know start the next case or until the phase of clinical care is kind of settled down, like the carotid clamp is on or whatever, then sure, the SRNA should stay beyond their allotted you know, out time. But if you would cut out, if relief showed up to get you out, then the SRNA should get out as well. They should get out on time. Their day is not over when they leave the OR. They have cases to look up, care plans to write, tests to study for, and other projects to work on. So again, this is a bit of a rant for the preceptors out there. And there's a good chance that most of you trainees will be preceptors someday. I don't think we should treat our trainees worse than we do employees and that they should be let out of clinical in the same frame of mind that we would expect to release an employee from work. There's reasons to stay and finish a case or complete some phase of clinical care, but staying late shouldn't be the norm in a healthy practice and it shouldn't be the norm for residents and SRNAs. All right, 
the next tip for you, all y'all trainees out there. Recognize that everyone in the room knows you're there and knows you're a trainee, even if they don't acknowledge you. They're judging you on how motivated you are to learn, whether you're paying attention and are engaged in the process. It's amazing how many times that as soon as the SRNA leaves the room for the day, the surgeon pipes up and gives me some commentary on what she thinks about the resident, good or bad. Then the rest of the room often will chime in too. You want to make a positive impact on the people who are in the OR. So they're watching you even if they act like they're not. It's a skill set of being a seasoned OR personnel. You know, who, you know who the students are and you're like watching them out of the corner of your eye. So when you're first starting out, it really is less about how much you know and more about if you're eager, interested, engaged, and actively working on improving your performance. This goes back to your attitude. If you're eager and willing to learn, the people around you will tend to support you more. They'll give you more grace when you slow the room down or have a long wake up or whatever. So some ways to help with this. Introduce yourself to just about everyone. Everyone is new to you, but pretty much everyone else probably already knows each other and they definitely know that you're the new guy. So introduce yourself. Strive to learn people's names. Write them down. Err on the side of professionalism and refer to people with doctorate degrees as doctors unless they invite you to use their first name. And still refer to them as doctors when you're introducing them to patients or talking about them with patients. Thank the surgeon and the other staff for their time and wish them a good day when you leave. Again, they know you're there even if they don't speak to you much throughout the day. And just know, if there's any perception, real or not, that the room was slow, they'll probably going to think it's your fault. So being grateful for their time, energy, and patience and having you in their cases will go a long way to paving the road ahead of not only you, but the other trainees who will come behind you. I often do this myself, even when I'm giving a 15-minute break to a colleague. I'll simply say something like, hey folks, I'm headed out. Jim's at the head of the bed. Thanks for a great day. Or if it's a 15-minute break, it'd be something like, hey y'all, Jim's at the head of the bed. Hope your case goes well. And then just leave. Don't wait for people to acknowledge what you said. They're busy. They might not catch it. Or they might not want to talk to you if you're a trainee. It doesn't matter. Give a gracious, succinct sound off and head out. But don't be too giddy about it. You might be thrilled that you're getting out. Maybe you're getting out early or whatever. Or maybe it's just a terrible case and you're excited to get out. But realize that the surgeon, surge techs, and OR nurse in the room might be tied to that case until it is done. Maybe even the case to follow or the one after that. Many specialty teams are like this. They're on call until the work is done, not until 3.30 or 5 o'clock. So you can let them know that you're leaving and thank them for a great day, but don't do it with the see y'all later suckers kind of attitude. Anesthesia often does shift work. We get, a, we get a lot of breaks and we leave on time in healthy practices. Surgeons and surgical teams are often scrubbed in until the work is done. So be respectful of their commitment. But thanking people will go a long way in building positive vibes around you. At Knowles, we call all of this stuff I'm talking about expedition behavior. Knowles is an outdoor education company that's focused on training people in leadership skills through outdoor experiences and wilderness medicine courses. I've taught for them for years. Expedition behavior is one of the leadership principles we discuss in our courses. Imagine yourself on a multi-day expedition with a small group of people. 
There are actions that will either make the experience smoother and more enjoyable for everyone and actions that can undermine group morale and function. Expedition behavior, or EB as the cool kids call it, is all about how to be a good team member, get along with others, know your role, and pull your own weight. It's about doing your part, taking responsibility and ownership for your actions, and treating everyone with respect, even when the going gets tough. Executing solid expedition behavior requires a degree of emotional intelligence and commitment to get the job done well, even when you're tired or the going is tough or maybe other people are not in a good mood. While training the OR is not a wilderness expedition, the principles for teamwork, leadership, and communication translate pretty well. As an anesthesia trainee, one of your responsibilities is to be open-minded and take ownership for your own performance. Being humble and expressing gratitude to those who are investing in you is one way you can practice good expedition behavior. So for instance, the manager of our anesthesia techs recently came up to me and was raving about one of our SRNAs. I'm like, how do you even know who this person is? You know, like the manager of the, of the anesthesia techs sometimes will help turn over rooms, but the reputation of this SRNA being kind and considerate to the anesthesia techs had reached him. And so he kind of like went to, you know, casually interact with this person and was blown away by how nice she was and how grateful she was. She was genuinely grateful for their work and helping her have a smooth day and quick turnovers. And having that kind of attitude will make your own path much easier as people around you will generally treat you better if you treat them well. So plan to treat everyone you meet with respect. You never know what kind of impact you're going to have on the people around you. So just err on being kind and respectful and grateful. Here's one more example or story for you. Occasionally, a new resident will not understand that putting trash in the trash can helps the anesthesia techs who come to turn over the rooms when they leave the patient and go to pack you. If you were to go into their OR at the end of the case, even a simple case like a lap coli, it might look like a war zone. Blood is on the anesthesia machine, trash is all over the floor, machine, and pixis. Used supplies are not in the trash can, and unopened supplies are stuck in every nook and cranny just in case. And the monitors are thrown carelessly on the floor or wherever they happen to land when they got disconnected and the resident rolled to pack you. Now, some cases can literally be like war zones, and it's all you can do to just keep the patient alive. But in most cases, you have time to put the trash in the trash can. When you don't, and that practice becomes a habit, it infuriates the anesthesia techs. They see it as a lack of respect for the role that they do. When 98% or more of anesthesia providers are able to have relatively tidy rooms at the end of a case, with even the used monitor cables hung neatly from the IV pole, and your room looks like a unit of blood and a paper shredder got into a fight during the case, it becomes old quickly for the anesthesia techs. And then other people like me hear about it. So want to iron that stuff out early. So pick up trash, hit the trash can. Attempts at hitting the trash can don't count. Hang your cables up on the IV pole at the end of the case. Clean your space up. Respect the fact that you've got people helping you and don't take advantage of them. I want to share with you the opening bit of a clinical guidelines document that I've created for the SRNAs who train with us at Maine Medical Center. This document sets the tone for the clinical experience and goes over everything from what resources to use to prepare for clinical to where to park and how to access our building. 
But at the start, I framed the whole process at the start of this document like this. It reads, we're excited to have you join us for clinical rotations as part of your anesthesia training, exclamation mark to, you know, kind of emphasize the point. <laughs> uh, please read this document carefully as it contains information that will make your time with this easier for you. Bullet point number one, how to be successful. We want you to be successful. We want to help you become a competent, confident CRNA. We will do our part by providing an exceptional clinical experience, supportive learning environment, and constructive feedback. We expect you to do your part by working hard, being on time, and owning your clinical education. Our staff looks to a set of core values to inform everything we do. They are patient-centeredness, integrity, respect, ownership, innovation, and excellence. These values should inform and guide all of our interactions with staff, patients, and visitors, and serve as a reference point for decision-making, conflict resolution, and problem-solving. You are on the path to join an esteemed profession. As an SRNA, you represent first and foremost yourself, as well as all other CRNAs and SRNAs and your university. Your actions will directly influence how people perceive you and other SRNAs and CRNAs. It's imperative that you own your actions and recognize that you have both the capacity and primary responsibility to shape your path and potential for success in anesthesia school and in your career. We expect you to be on time, to be professional and respectful to all staff and patients, and to take responsibility to learn as much as possible during your time at MMC. We do not expect you to be flawless in your clinical practice or to know everything. We do expect you to prepare well, work hard, and stay open-minded and committed to improving your skills and knowledge based on the constructive feedback you will receive. There's nothing we enjoy more than watching you succeed, but you have to put the work in, end quote. So there you go. That's the opening kind of tone setting few paragraphs of our clinical guidelines document. I do think it's important for SRNAs and physician anesthesia residents to recognize that you represent the profession in all of your actions. I'm not a big believer for preceptors who say that, you know, trainees are not part of the profession. They try to create some sort of false dichotomy between practicing providers and anesthesia trainees. Uh, you're part of the profession. You are on team anesthesia to everyone else in the perioperative environment. So remember that. And remember that you first represent yourself and your family. You then represent your school or residency program. And then you represent the entire profession by your actions and attitude. The way you act as an anesthesia resident is the way other providers, perioperative nurses, surgeons, surge techs, and our patients and hospital administrators will see our entire profession. Now, I'm not really into using shame and guilt as a motivator. What I could say here is, so don't embarrass me. Don't embarrass me or your program faculty or the other CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists on our team. But uh, that's pulling on shame and guilt as a motivator, and I don't think that's the most powerful motivator. I think we can say that as an anesthesia resident, you represent the entire profession, your school or your residency program, and yes, even specific program faculty or clinical coordinators, and that's a good thing because you're part of an esteemed profession. You're part of the team, and you're on a path to become an expert provider. You're part of the team, and as Seth Godin says of group culture, people like us do things like this. Anesthesiologists work hard to master their craft. We treat others with respect and deliver the best care possible to our patients. But that doesn't mean you're going to be flawless. When you mess up because you weren't prepared or you didn't know something or you weren't experienced enough, that's okay, at least for a bit. 
That's actually the point of clinical training. You aren't supposed to show up knowing everything. You're here to learn. Your failures become a problem when you aren't doing the work to iron them out, to learn and work on improving things, because that's what it means to be an anesthesia provider. I'm not flawless, obviously. I make mistakes all the maybe not all the time, but I definitely make mistakes. And I hate it when I make clinical mistakes. I try to avoid them, but I know they are part of working in dynamic and chaotic environments and are part of simply being human. So when they do happen, I commit to learn from them and improve my process. So recently I was doing an EVAR, an endovascular triple A repair on a super sick patient. I nailed the A-line at the start of the case, intubated the patient, got a second large bore IV placed and had the patient smooth sailing for the whole case. I was feeling pretty good about myself that day. Then right at the end of the case, when they were using the vessel closure device to close the femoral artery, the patient coughed because I had let the paralytic get a little light. It's a stimulating moment when they use this device, and I know that, and the patient coughed, and he tore his femoral artery and began to bleed profusely. The surgical team had to emergently cut down, gain control of the bleeding, and repair the artery, which was super difficult because the patient was a vasculopath with terrible blood vessels and atherosclerosis. The surgeon was pissed. They were done with the case, literally moments away from breaking scrub and being finished. And because of my suboptimal execution of my role, the case got much more complex, longer and more difficult and more dangerous for the patient. So the surgeon was not just pissed, he was pissed at me and rightfully so. It's been years since I've had a surgeon pissed at me like that. Now, would the vessel have torn during emergence anyway because the tissue was friable to begin with? Maybe. Is this surgeon known for being grumpy and having adolescent-style temper tantrums? Yes. But do those things excuse the fact that I made a mistake that put the patient at risk and caused my surgical colleagues to work a lot harder? No. I have to take ownership of what happened. So I apologized, explained what went wrong, and took responsibility right in the moment. I spoke up right when the situation was unfolding, explained what happened and what I was doing to get the patient still again. And then 30 to 45 minutes later, when we were closing again and wrapping up, I apologized again, made sure the whole team was still in the room, and I clearly explained what happened and that it was my fault that the patient coughed. The team was grateful for the explanation. The surgeon had cooled off and respected the fact that I was willing to have the conversation. And he even admitted that he wasn't surprised at the artery tour since the tissues were so terrible to begin with. And then we all went on about our day in a much better mindset. So it's through ownership that we engage in the process of continual improvement and working towards mastering our craft. You're going to have moments when you mess up, but it's when you own them and you keep going and you communicate well that you continue on this trajectory of constant improvement. So, all right, that's probably enough on like, getting your mindset and attitude right and the philosophy around all that. I want to wrap up with a couple more practical tips for you and then we're out of here. So get comfortable being uncomfortable. You will be a novice in the OR and you're on a mission to learn the craft of becoming an anesthesia provider. That's an uncomfortable process. We've talked a bit about that already on skill development. I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to episode 32 titled harnessing the power of deliberate practice That episode lays out the specifics of how to actually go about skill development as an anesthesia provider. But getting comfortable being uncomfortable pertains to other aspects of training as well. You're going to probably go to lots of hospitals and surgical centers during anesthesia school. Each is very different, but also operates on similar themes. It's all about getting patients from pre-op to PACI, pretty much. 
And I swear, pretty much every hospital in the U.S. is an evolving network of buildings and hallways that were built up over the last 100 years and don't always make sense. You have to learn to navigate these physical structures as well as the social networks and hierarchies that live and operate in them, which can be equally antiquated, unique, and strange. But as long as you are comfortable being uncomfortable, you're going to do fine. So let's touch on like clinical apps for just a sec. Uh, there's a virtual plethora of apps that you might find useful. I use Vargo probably once a week. It's a hundred bucks, but well worth the one-time price. I also use Master Anesthesia, which remarkably is completely free. In episode 38 of Anesthesia Guidebook, I talk with Master Anesthesia creator Matthew Willis about the app and what he's working on developing. One of the best features of the app is a drug calculator that will help you understand the maximum doses of local anesthetics when mixing medications in various blocks that you or the surgeon will do. So say you put in an Expiril adductor canal block and a ropivacaine popliteal fossa block in pre-op, and then the surgeon wants to know how much additional local she can inject in the knee capsule for a total knee arthroplasty. Master Anesthesia makes it super easy to see the proportions of each type of local anesthetic that's been given according to the patient's weight, and then how much more you can give. I'd also recommend UpToDate for general all-around medical knowledge. Many hospitals and universities will grant you free access to UpToDate. The American Society for Regional Anesthesia, or ASRA, has an app that provides lots of great information on anticoagulants and the relative timing for doing blocks, surgery, or pulling catheters relative to when the patients have taken anticoagulants. There's lots of other stuff out there. Apps for accessing journal articles like Browsine or Read, the PD Crisis app, and more. I'd also recommend that you ask your clinical sites if they have procedure guidelines or helpful hints documents available. Our group has both. We have a formal policy website that covers very basic information about a handful of surgical procedures. And then our CRNA group has created an extensive Google Doc on practice tips for pretty much every surgical procedure we do. It's the stuff you actually need to know. And when necessary, also contains surgeon preferences for particular cases. I always share this document freely with the SRNAs that come train with us because if they have access to information like that, they're more likely to be successful. Some of our CRNAs pushed back initially on me sharing this info with the SRNAs, believing that you know the SRNAs should have to look up all the information themselves, but I see our helpful hints document as an adjunct to generalized surgical procedural info that you can find in books like Jaffe, which if you don't have Jaffe, if you're not using Jaffe, you should totally be using Jaffe to prep for clinical. It runs down all of the surgical procedures, uh, what's going on from the surgeon's perspective and what to expect from the anesthesia perspective. So definitely go check out that book. Jaffe's the dude's name. And so you should definitely be reading about these surgeries in general and know what to expect before you go into clinical. But if your local clinical sites have policies or helpful hints documents, getting access to those kinds of things can be incredibly helpful as you build your anesthesia plans. Now, you should also collaborate with other anesthesia residents on this kind of information sharing as much as possible. Remember, the competition is over once you're in anesthesia training. You got in. You made it. So now it's time to find ways to support each other in your program. Share resources. Create tip sheets. Preceptor or surgeon preference sheets. Divide things up. 
you know, come up with a list of the 50 most common surgeries early in your program and divide that up amongst your classmates. And then everyone build out care plans for your specific slice of cases and then share everything with everyone else. Everybody doesn't have to build 50 individual care plans from scratch, you know, or however many surgeries you want to come up with and, and divide up. But if you divide and conquer, you'll accelerate your learning and free up time to focus on other reading and preparation. So find ways to collaborate with your cohort. In terms of what gear to bring to clinical, that's often a personal preference. I'm going to share a couple of mine with you. The short list should probably include a smartphone, stethoscope, and a pen. You're off to a good start if you have that gear. Now, COVID-19 has reminded healthcare providers around the world of how important eye protection is. Uh, so most anesthesia providers I work with now have bought some sort of personal eye protection. You can make a little bit of a personal statement on your style in terms of what you decide on for eye protection, you know, or you can just opt for using the disposable stuff that your clinical sites will provide. Another option is the cloth hat. You'll need to find out if your clinical site allows personal hats, but I, most of them probably do at this point. So that's another little style point that you can add to your own personal flair. Uh, many residents carry around drug cards or some other collection of notes. A spiral bound set of note cards is pretty common or like, uh, like a stack of note cards with like a big O-ring through them. Having them contained, it can be so helpful. It's just like that classic episode when you drop your drug cards and they spiral lay out all over the hallway. Like you don't want that. Like, like lock those things down somehow. So a lot of folks have some sort of collection of note cards. Uh, I see most SRNAs have like every drug outlined on a drug card and writing this information down yourself can definitely help you learn it. And then having physical cards with you can help reassure your clinical faculty that you're referencing notes in the middle of a case and not just cruising on your phone if you need to look something up. That being said, I started developing notes for all kinds of things that are anesthesia-related on my phone during anesthesia school. So I usually write them out in the Notes app. I use Apple products. So I've got, I don't know, over 100 anesthesia notes on my computer. And then those seamlessly transfer and are available on my phone. So I kind of geared myself towards having stuff on my phone. And that gave me all the information that I need at my fingertips uh, including, you know, specific apps and resources and that kind of stuff that are all digital and on my phone. So you're, you're going to find your own system that works for you. Just know that it will probably change over time and that's totally fine. Oh, and then the pen thing. I just want to say the absolute hands down best pen ever is the retractable ultra fine point Sharpie. No questions asked, not up for debate. And I am perfectly comfortable being dogmatic on this point. <laughs> My habit is to carry like a regular fine tip Sharpie marker, like the classic Sharpie for writing on IV bags, you know, tape or whatever. And then I always have an ultra fine point retractable Sharpie for all of the writing needs. It's super fine point. So you can take notes on anything, you know, uh, make scribbles on all the syringes like the you know your date and time and initials and all that kind of stuff it's the best and they're pretty cheap so the retractable ultra fine point sharpie that's what you need uh so what else a couple more things then we're out of here each clinical site you go to is going to have specific expectations about where to park what their schedule is what kind of clinical rotations you're going to be on uh when you'll be on those clinical rotations and who you're going to work with if they don't clearly outline this kind of thing to you up front, then just ask. If something's not going well or you're not getting the kinds of cases you need, ask. 
your preceptors and clinical coordinators hopefully are doing the best job they can, but they often are not being paid by your program if you're an SRNA. And if you're a physician resident, your specific clinical faculty may not have a clear understanding of the whole program outline that you're working through. So if something's not working out, uh, bring that up. You know, Ask your program faculty, ask your clinical coordinators, and try to get that stuff ironed out. Advocating for yourself within your program and clinical sites is key to creating the experience that you need. You got to figure out how to do that carefully, but if something's not working out for you or you don't know what's coming next or when you can do certain case types or whatever, just ask. Communication is key and don't assume that the people around you always have their game dialed in or that the rules are super rigid. If you frame your ask in the context of chasing the best learning opportunities, you might be surprised in the kind of support you're going to get. But don't be lame. Don't be lazy or self-centered in your approach to schedule changes or asking about things. You know, you're going to have to work through clinical rotations that you're not stoked about. You're going to do, you know, some long days, some call shifts, working on holidays. All of this is part of being a real anesthesia provider. So you can't, you know, ask for like, everything under the sun and expect that's going to be handed to you on a silver platter. And in general, I would say, I think a huge part of becoming an anesthesia provider, again, just to hit on that again, is, is taking ownership and responsibility, stepping into this profession where you not only own your actions, but you own the outcome. Everything is not going to get handed to you or made super easy for you. The world definitely does not revolve around trainees even though you can find some really high quality programs out there and programs should be working to, to set you up for success. But the personal responsibility for your success at the end of the day comes down to you. No one else can do the work. No one else can put the time in. No one else can figure out how to get from point A, which is starting your program, to point B, which is finishing successful. You've got to do that work. All right, so on that note, Keep track of your cases and make sure you're getting the experience you need, especially within or by the last six months of training. You do not want to come down to the last month or two and realize you still need a bunch of PD cases or central lines or hearts and not have those rotations planned. Also, keep up with the expectations that your program has in terms of paperwork. If you have to turn in clinical logs or evaluations along the way, figure out a rhythm and a system to get those things done on time. Many aspects of anesthesia training may feel like you're jumping through hoops, but you got to jump through these to get through the program. And again, don't be lame. Figure out a way to stay organized, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. You don't want to be the reason that you get tripped up. And again, if you're organized, turn things in on time, aren't delinquent or deficient on assignments, and you're motivated and eager to succeed, the people around you will be way more willing to help support you should you need some sort of special accommodations at some point. So go big, go hard. It will only make your path easier for you. All right, one last thing, then we're wrapping up, I promise. I want to touch on handling controlled substances briefly. As an anesthesia trainee, you'll have easy access to just about every type of controlled substance there is in the OR. You often share responsibility for accurate accounting of controlled substances with your clinical preceptor, Meaning if there's a discrepancy, you're both on the hook in terms of the hospital's procedures for reconciliation and disciplinary action if there's a possibility of diversion. So just be super careful out there with controlled substances. With many things in clinical, remember the adage that slow is smooth, 
and smooth is fast. When it comes to charting, wasting, or returning controlled substances at the end of the case, that is the best time to slow down and make sure everything is accurate. It is way easier to double check the chart and pack you and make sure you documented everything you gave. Look at the syringes you still have with you and make sure it all lines up. Every clinical site will have specific policies for whether you waste or return leftover controlled substances. So figure out what those are early and then follow them very carefully. You don't want to be the center of attention in an investigation over discrepancies. It's incredibly stressful when there's a discrepancy and the case was several days or weeks ago. You often won't remember what happened. And then it's you can get into a he said, she said, you know, whatever kind of back and forth about what went down. It is so much easier to maintain accurate charting and records for each case at the time of the case. All right, so in closing, there is so much more that we could still say about how to be successful in clinical. With any of these ideas I've brought up in this podcast, we could spin off and go deeper on any of these topics. But hopefully this has given you some things to think about as you prepare for the clinical environment. Clinical is where the rubber meets the road. You cannot learn how to do anesthesia by reading textbooks, watching videos, listening to podcasts, and passing exams. You have to engage in a clinical residency. Clinical is where you put the science into practice and work on developing the art of anesthesia. One of the most frustrating things you'll experience along the way is having to adapt to the preferences of countless clinical preceptors who all do things a little differently, but who all swear that their way is the only way to do anesthesia. Don't get too beat down by that process. See your clinical residency as the one opportunity you'll have in your career to see up close and personally hundreds of ways of doing anesthesia. Weigh the opinions of your preceptors against the latest science of anesthesia and slowly start building your own preferences and practice. The goal, after all, is for you to become an anesthesia provider and put the science and techniques into practice on your own. So keep that in mind. The goal is for you to become an independently thinking and operating anesthesia provider who's on the path to master the craft. Your clinical residency should make you proficient at most, if not all, phases of clinical practice, but you likely won't be an expert at the time you, quote, finish training. I always say that finishing training and passing boards is not the finish line. It's a huge accomplishment. It's an ending of that phase of your career for sure, but in many ways, it's when the starting gun goes off. It's the starting line of a career that's incredibly rewarding and so much fun, but don't expect to have mastered everything in training. What comes after school or residency, whether a fellowship or straight into practice, is where you really hone your own practice and continue to work towards true mastery. All right, so in the next podcast, we'll come back and talk specifically about how to communicate with clinical faculty and preceptors as we continue this series on how to thrive in training. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope this has been helpful for you. You're on an incredible path, and all the hard work you put in will definitely be worth it. Stay at it, and I'll see you next time. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a leak to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.